Exodus chapter number 7. We are covering Exodus. The idea is that all the, the, the major themes of Scripture are found in the book of Exodus, and they're carried all the way through the Bible. And I'm giving you a framework. How, how do you refer back to the Old Testament? The Old Testament is not a mystery. If you understand how the Old and New Testaments work together, it, it, is, it is beautiful. And I said last week that you need to remember that the way to view the Old Testament, one way to view it, I should say, one way to view it is that it's the illustration of the teaching of the New Testament. So if you have a children's book and you got words and you have this beautiful illustration, it helps you understand what you're reading. It helps children understand what they're reading. And really, the instruction that we get in the New Testament is illustrated in the actual physical, um, uh, historical events of the Old Testament. And they're, they're presenting a spiritual reality. Today is no different. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, the first enemies that they, they faced were not external. They were internal. Think about it. The struggle was the war within, and it's the battle that's raged in every human heart. The difficulties that they faced in Mara, bitterness, remember that? In the desert of Sin, at Massah and Meribah, they were not caused by outward circumstances primarily, but by their own disbelief and their own discontent. And nothing has changed. Uh, our ex external circumstances do not affect what goes on inside us. Our external circumstances draw out what was already inside. They did not trust God to provide, and as a result, they were divided and discouraged. Suddenly, in our passage today, uh, suddenly and unexpectedly, they were attacked from the outside by an enemy. Look at verse number 8 of chapter number 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, this was the first military skirmish in Israel's long campaign to win the promised land. Amalek is another word for the Amalekites, the people. Amalek was a grandson of, of Esau. They trace their lineage all the way back to Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? They were, um, they were a nomadic tribe that were primarily focused in northern Sinai Peninsula. And I, I, didn't, I threw this map up right before the sermon because I thought n most of you don't know northern Sinai Peninsula. So I thought it's the illustration that I was just talking about, right? So if you look, here's Egypt. Here's uh, uh, um, the Gulf of Suez. And, and uh, then now I just forgot that Gulf. Um, uh, Aqaba, thank you. And then you have uh, southern Sinai, the Mount Sinai is down here. The Amalekites were northern, northern Sinai. Hebron was somewhere down in this area. Kadesh Barnea was down in here. And this is all Israel. And so the Amalekites were all right in this area. Now Israel was down here and they, they came down suddenly and they, they attacked them for whatever reason. That gives you a visual of what we're talking about here when this tribe came. They made their livelihood partially by attacking other people groups and confiscating their wealth. Sounds like government, doesn't it? Uh, that's a joke, okay? Amalekites, one of the things that they had done, they had domesticated the camel, and they used its swiftness you know, to make sudden surprise attacks. The, the Amalekites were long-term enemies of Israel. 
If you look at the history in the Old Testament, several hundred years after what we're just reading today, um, uh, you find that um, um, God commanded King Saul to make war against the Amalekites, and he, he um, commanded them, co- commanded Saul to destroy the people. But instead, what the Bible says is that Saul kept Agag, that's a key name, Agag, alive, and the sheep and donkeys. Well, uh, he must have done a little worse than that because when David came as king of Israel a few years later, the Bible says that when he was running from Saul down in, well, I, I took the map off, southern, down around the Dead Sea, when his soldiers went off, the the Amalekites attacked the city where their spouses and children, their families were. And it says that David pursued them and killed a bunch of them, and only 400 of them got away. Fast forward another uh, about 500 years from that, you find in the book of Esther, Esther is in um, Babylon, right? And um, she's in the king's palace. She's in part of the Babylonian or Persian Empire. And there's a villain, and his name is Haman. And he was a what? He was an Agagite. Okay? He was a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. And so, linking all the way back to the Amalekites, they were a nemesis of Israel all the way through the Old Testament. And, and so, you have this enemy... And, and the Bible is going to teach us an important lesson about spiritual battles. Let's stand together as we read Scripture. Uh, this is Exodus 17. We'll begin reading in verse number 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now I'm going to stop right there and just point something out. Notice that there is an actual battle going on, and who's on top of the hill? The priestly class, Moses the mediator, Aaron and her, who are part of the priestly class, are interceding up there on the hill. Verse number 12, But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and on the other, uh, on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Lord, I thank you so much for Scripture. I pray that you will just burn in our hearts these principles of um, um, spiritual warfare in, in this world, uh, principles of leadership in, um, on the earth. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to just instill in our hearts the glory of God and the, the debt of service and praise and thanksgiving and, that we owe to him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you. For whatever reason, 
we, we read this, right? We read this attack. For whatever reason, their attack was cowardly. We know that because in Deuteronomy, when Moses is giving his very last sermon before he goes up to Mount Nebo and dies, he says this in Deuteronomy 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under um, heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. I'm sorry, I'm reading from Exodus. So let me get up. There we go. You guys are probably wondering what on earth is going on. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now, what did he do? What did he do? Next verse, Deuteronomy 25, 18. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind, he did not fear the Lord. So this attack, we find out a little bit more about it. They came from behind and they attacked the weakest ones, the stragglers, the weak. And what a cowardly way to, to, to fight against the people, right? It's obvious that the Amalekites were taking their orders from somewhere higher up, weren't they? Or should we say maybe somewhere lower down? Since they were enemies of God, these soldiers were really in Satan's army. And Satan was determined to prevent the Israelites from ever reaching the promised land. Satan kept them in bondage for 400 years under the dominion of Pharaoh. God delivered them. Now they're out in the wilderness, and Satan one more time is trying to bring them back into bondage through the Amalekites. The Amalekites are emissaries of Satan. They're taking their orders from there. And um, so he caused them to attack the Israelites. Now to see how this relates to our own spiritual experience, remember this. Remember the Israelites were already saved. They had been delivered from their bondage back at the Red Sea. Israel's encounter with the Amalekites is a picture of the church in its own spiritual warfare. The battle is another Old Testament type. It's a biblical event that shows the pattern of our life in Christ. It's so important for you to understand. The attack was an historical event. And it pointed to a higher spiritual reality. We have been delivered from our bondage to our Egypt, the Egypt of our sin. We, have, uh, we are headed to the land of glory, are we not? Our ultimate victory is certain because Jesus won the crucial battle when he died on the cross. The daily battles that we face right now are a mop-up operation. Now, everyone who comes to faith in Christ is free from the power of death and hell. However, the enemies of Christ have not surrendered yet. And so on our pilgrimage, we will continually be ambushed by Satan. We are engaged in a constant spiritual struggle to resist what are we resisting? We're resisting temptation. We are resisting um, the, 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 we are uh, tempted to carry on the work of Christ in this gospel on our own. We are uh, faced with attacks. They're often sudden. And so here's the question that I have for you. This is the question we're going to answer. How do we engage the enemy 
and stay healthy as a church. How do we fight spiritual battles and stay healthy as a church? There are several things. And number one, marks of a healthy community of faith is that we do this in God's power. Now, what did Moses tell Joshua to do? He, he told them to go find some men to fight. And, and I won't go deep into this, but the, the Israelites, they were shepherds in Egypt and craftsmen and stuff like that. They, weren't, they didn't have an army. They didn't have weapons. They, they had limited weapons. Most likely when they plundered the Egyptians when they left, they were given some swords and some other things like that. And so they probably, did, at this time, did not have enough weapons. Remember, they're only three months out. We'll see that in next week. They're only three months out. They didn't have time to make swords and weapons of war yet. And so Joshua, he told Joshua to choose men to fight. Well, who were they? They were the guys with the swords, the guys with the weapons, the spears. Meanwhile, what did Moses do? Moses took Aaron and Hur and went up on the mountain with the staff of God. We talked about that last week, didn't we? The staff of God. And in his hand, and he lifted up his hands in intercession. It doesn't say that he prayed, but that's the reason why he lifted his hands. And what was this doing? He was up on a mountain. So everybody could see him with the staff of God raised up in his hand. What is he doing? He is showing their complete dependence upon God for victory. Right? The battle was the Lord's. And when his arms were up, Israel won. When his arms fell, they started losing. Now I'm going to make an amazing tie, I think, to this in just a second. All through the Old Testament, the lifting of hands is symbolic of prayer. Over and over in Psalms and different places, Isaiah, lift your hands in prayer. We have in the New Testament, of course, uh, one of the most uh, well-known ones. In 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands. Lifting holy hands. Our spiritual battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil are won and lost through the artillery of prayer. Let me say that one more time. Our spiritual battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil are won through prayer. This is why the Apostle Paul ended his famous teaching on the full armor of God. Remember that in Ephesians 6? He ends that teaching by saying, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He just got done talking about spiritual warfare, didn't he? And he said, pray at all times. Now, think with me. Would Moses' battle against the Amalekites figure into this passage? As long as the hands were up and they were praying, they were winning. When the hands dropped, symbolic of them no longer praying together, what happened? They lost. Paul in the New Testament talks about spiritual warfare and says what? Pray at all times. Is this not an illustration of a truth that Paul was teaching in the New Testament? It is, isn't it? Amazing, isn't it? The way the Bible ties itself together. Now this brings up a question. 
And I'm sure some of you are thinking this question. What happens when we do not pray? What happens individually? What happens as a church as we do not pray? Well, it's very simple. We start losing the battle. Now, we can have the whole armor of God on. We might be wearing the belt of truth. We might have the breastplate of righteousness on. We might have the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And we might even have the sword of the Spirit, right? We might have all of these things. However, if we do not ask God to save us, we will not be able to take our stand against the devil. He's far more powerful than we are. Instead, if we do not pray, we will be led away from truth into error. We will give in to temptation. We will be dragged down into doubt and discouragement. And if you do not believe me, find the Friday email that I sent out and read what Jesus prayed for the church. Read John 17. You're going to see those exact things he prayed for in that prayer. Now think about the situation with the Amalekites. Because some might be saying, yeah, I understand that. But we're God's people. God's with us, right? Well, go back now to Exodus and think, think with me. In this battle with the Amalekites, was God there? Yes, somewhere there was a pillar, a gigantic pillar of cloud that turned into a pillar of fire at night, right? We know that. It was there with them constantly. God was there. So God was in their presence. He was in their midst. However, that didn't guarantee victory. Just because there was this big cloud of cloud, representative of the glory of God, God was with them. It doesn't mean that they won. The battle is the Lord's, and in order for them to win, they have to lift up their hands in prayer. They have to pray. Stunning, isn't it, to think about? Our life in Christ is no different. Yes, God is in our midst. He's here. He says that in the New Testament where two or three are gathered. I am here. In Revelation, he calls the church his temple, doesn't he? John, in the Gospel of John, he calls it a temple. Paul calls it a temple. Christ is here in our midst. But just like the Israelites, we face problems inside the church and enemies outside the church. And prayer is essential to that battle. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Man, I see all kinds of people affirming this. Do you know, I, I came to the conclusion years ago as a pastor that the church in the U.S. was on autopilot, asleep at the wheel. The church is prosperous. It had political and social capital. Books, all kinds of books have been written since the 80s on how to grow a church. And by the way, grow a church means numbers and finances. Everything became formulaic. This is how it works. You want to know how to grow a church? I'll give it to you. You don't have to read a book. Ready? If you greet people in the parking lot, make them feel welcome in the service. If you have greeters and they're very friendly, if you have 
great music with a really hip and cool worship leader. And your pastor has a haircut that goes kind of like this. And he makes all kinds of cultural references. And you have lots of activities for the kids. And every single sermon is inspirational. God will bless the church. That's literally what's being taught. I'm not joking with you. Now, if you think about it, all of those results can be achieved without the Holy Spirit of God. Because when God grows a church, the growth that he's talking about is not in numbers. It's the inside growth of a person. And behind this facade is, of, of spiritual success is a very real spiritual battle. There are real evil spiritual forces trying to derail and defeat the church individual by individual by individual by individual satan wants to destroy this church and the way he destroys this church is he destroys you and you and you and you and you and you and you you can't do anything to stop satan in your own power it's impossible that was my conclusion, by the way, about the church. And so last year, when, uh, when we had coronavirus, and we had riots, and we had CRT, and Black Lives Matter, and all the social unrest, I thought that it would make people think that there's a real spiritual battle going on. I thought, to, to be blunt, I'm just going to be absolutely blunt, I thought that Christians would gather together and want to pray together because we face a very real spiritual enemy. After all, doesn't the Bible call us to corporate prayer? That means praying together, praying together, corporate prayer. Over and over and over, the New Testament calls us to it. We see examples of it in the, in the Old Testament. But what I know is corporate prayer is hard It's hard to pray together. Why? Why is it hard to pray together? First of all, it forces us to pray for intangibles. What do I mean by that? If you are in our directory or um, you're a regular tender, I pray for you by name. But it's hard work because I don't know what's going on in your life. Yeah, I see you here on Sundays, and that's about it. But if I pray for you by name, and I I pray spiritual, intangible things, please help so-and-so to grow in Christ, kindle a fervent love in their heart. I can't, I don't know. That's an intangible, isn't it, in a way? You can see it a little bit, but I don't really know what's going on inside a person's heart. And so when you get gathered together in corporate prayer, you don't see those kind of results overnight. Now, I will say this. You see it in a church over time. It either becomes an alive church or a dead church, and you see it over time. Secondly, corporate prayer is hard because it forces us to pray God's agenda. Now, let's be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. I've got lots of things, personally, I like to pray for. Don't you? You know, maybe the Dallas Cowboys will have a good season this year. I don't know. (laughs) Skeptics. But, but seriously, 
when, when you're by yourself, where do your prayers immediately go? I mean, we're human. They go to ourselves, don't they? My family, my friends, my goals and desires. When you gather together in corporate prayer, it's hard because you're praying for things that you're not used to praying for as much. Corporate prayer is also hard because um, it, it, um, in prayer, there's no immediate um, perceived benefit. For example, when you, when you come to a Bible study, we have lots of Bible studies here. You usually walk away from a Bible study saying, oh man, that was I learned X. I hope that when you leave here this morning, you say, you know what? The Lord taught me this. So there's a benefit. It's like we're consumers. But when you pray, there's no immediate perceived benefit, is there? Because you're praying for other people. You're praying God's agenda. You're praying for the church. You're praying for others. It's a, it's a selfless thing. And so it's hard. But it's necessary. Back to Exodus 17, I have a question. Did, did God promise to deliver Israel from the pro, to the promised land? He promised. I'm going to take you back. I pr- he promised the patriarchs hundreds of, 400 years before that. He, did he promise to be with them? He did. Did he promise to protect them? He did. But they had to learn a lesson. And the lesson is that they are completely dependent upon the Lord. Think about this. You've already, if you've been reading and studying, you've, you, they're in the wilderness. If it were completely up to them and God wasn't there, they would have already have died. Of, of thirst, of hunger, or being overcome by an, an external enemy. If it were completely up to them. God delivered every single time. And that's the picture of our life in the spiritual wilderness that we call this life between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. If it were completely up to our own power, we would lose the faith, we would become dead in trespasses and sins, and we would never make it to the promised land. But God, what does Jesus say? In John, he says, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. I will keep them. And he prays that. Read John 17. I pray that you will keep them. The only reason we will make it to heaven is that God keeps us. If it were up to our own power, none of us would be Christians. It's a spiritual lesson we must learn. And so um, we acknowledge then when we pray that we're absolutely dependent upon God to conquer the enemies of our faith. This means, like everything else in the Christian life, prayer is for the glory of God. And the way it glorifies God is it shows that the victory belongs to Him alone. And this is most likely why Moses went up on a hill. So by standing where everybody could see him, he was making sure that Israel learned the power of God in prayer. So the first mark of a a healthy church or healthy community of faith is the power of God, and that power comes through depending upon him in prayer and intercession. Secondly, second mark of a healthy community of faith is evangelism. Let's look at chapter 18. I'm going to speed up now. 
okay? Um, we're not going to be here two hours, I promise. I'm going to speed up. In Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, um, came to the camp, and he brought Moses' wife and his two sons out to meet him, and he stayed for a while to visit. Now Jethro, you'll read in verse number 1, was a Midianite priest. What does that mean? That means he is a priest that serves pagan gods. Okay, so he was a complete idolater. And up until this time, most likely he thought, this is the thought of the day, by the way. This is how they thought. Um, we have Baal, we have Ashtaroth, um, we have all these different local deities, and you actually have the Baal of this city, the Baal of that city, uh, the Baal of this city, and so on and so forth. He would have thought that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was a local deity in the pantheon of all the other gods in the area. There were tons of gods. The Egyptians had hundreds if not thousands of gods and God was just simply another one of those kind of gods now many of our the people of our day think of God the same way don't they in other words well you religious people you worship God in order to make it through this life I have and you name it, whether they're worshiping the gods, secular gods of health, secular god of wealth, happiness, um, the, the, the books that you can read, how to have power over everybody in your conversation, how to, how to snag that cell, you name the books. These are all of our secular gods. For a lot of people, they're God is government. And government's trying to act like a god, by the way. Hey, we'll provide everything for you, Right? And so many of our people think about this and say, well, you survive by worshiping your God. I'm going to live the American dream. And what they don't know is they're actually worshiping the God as well. Now put yourself, this, this is a fun exercise. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. His father-in-law, who he's known now for 40 years, came now Moses, remember, Moses asked, hey, can I go back to Egypt and check on my family? Jethro said, sure, because he was tending his father-in-law's sheep. Goes back, and now he's back, and he's meeting his father-in-law. If you were Moses, what would you want to tell him? It was amazing. We went there, the Nile River turned to blood, and there's hail, and and these plagues, and the Red Sea, and water, you know, that's exactly what he was doing, wasn't it? He was telling Jethro the wonderful works of Almighty God. You would share all that God did as well, wouldn't you? Moses sat his father down, father-in-law down, and shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told him what he had done. Look at verse number 8, 18.8. Look at Exodus 18.8. Then Moses told his father-in-law what? All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them, and how that the Lord had delivered them from what? From slavery, from bondage. Next verse. What's Jethro's reaction? And Jethro rejoiced for all the good, the what? 
that the Lord had done to Israel in that he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Now, I want you to notice the pattern here. Notice, first of all, bad news. There was bondage. Okay? Then there was deliverance. And then there was hardship. But God still delivered. God not only led Israel out of Egypt, but he also led his people through the wilderness. And this, too, was part of the message of salvation. Moses reported how that God had sent his people bread from heaven, water from a rock, and um, how he gave an account of the battle of Rephidim where hands were lifted up to God's throne and God defeated the Amalekites. And the most important thing about this proclamation was how thoroughly God-centered it was. He didn't go to Jethro and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Did he? Christians have a similar story to tell because our salvation is based upon what God has done in human history. Have you, dear believer, lost the awe and wonder of your own salvation? The story starts with our bondage to sin. Our entire race sinned in Adam and since Adam, and thus we have always been enslaved to sin. But after long centuries of captivity, God sent a Savior. And his name wasn't Moses. His name was Jesus Christ to deliver us. And it was his son, Jesus, who saved us through his death on the cross. The Bible says that God, the Son, became a man. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. His son became a man so that by his death he, he might <coughs> destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This was our Red Sea crossing. The crucifixion and with it the resurrection brought us from death to life, from bondage to freedom, but that's not the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination. In a way, it's only the beginning because now we are living for Christ, following him through the wasteland. As we walk in this wilderness, we have a story to tell about how, in spite of our ongoing rebellion, our day-to-day -day rebellion, God provides for us and delivers us from all of our enemies. Isn't that exciting? Every day we fight a personal rebellion against God. That's what the Bible tells us. Yes, we're in Christ. Yes, Satan is defeated. But we have a sin nature that every day has to be put down. Now, what does this sound like to you when Moses describes all of this stuff? They were enemies. They were slaves. They became um, alive through the Dead Sea and so on and so forth. How about Ephesians chapter number 2? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Jethro's response. Look at his response. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, this is important, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders and ate bread 
uh, with Moses' father-in-law before God. I want you to notice three things about his response. Three things about saving faith. Number one, he had faith. He had faith. Jethro came to a clear and certain conviction that the God of Israel was the one true divine or supreme deity. It's, it's evident because he used the covenant name of God, didn't he? He said the Lord. That's the covenant name of God. He called him by his covenant name, Yahweh. He came to know God, the true God, by his true name. Secondly, he responded with joy. Verse number 9 says, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The Hebrew word for rejoiced here, by the way, is this overwhelming sense of joy and happiness that penetrates to the deepest part of our souls. And then the third thing that he did is he responded with praise and worship. And whenever God brings people to saving faith, it is so that they can worship him. God saved you to worship him. God saved you for his glory. I was thinking about this this morning. So many of the Christian songs that we hear are these sappy love songs that make us sound like it's just me and Jesus, you know, and he's my lover, he's my, almost like my girlfriend or boyfriend type songs. And it's all about me, 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 me. But what is the theme of Exodus? What's the theme of salvation? The theme of it is we're saved for God's glory. A lot of times songs celebrate we're going to heaven, and there's nothing wrong with this. But remember, our going to heaven is not the end in itself. Our going to heaven is for the end of the glory of God. God brings us to heaven to glorify himself. We are brought to heaven for his glory. That's the main purpose of salvation. The main purpose of our salvation is God's glory, not to save us from hell. He saved us from hell for his glory. That's an important emphasis to, to remember. And this is part of the purpose of evangelism. There are many reasons to share the gospel, aren't there? Christ commanded it, which is reason enough, but it's also part of God's plan of salvation. His way of rescuing sinners from the wrath to come and the goal of all gospel ministry is the worship of God. And so what, what do we do? What do they do at Thrive? They, they give the testimony of the good news about Jesus Christ so that people will praise him. And I guarantee you, you have multiple testimonies of young ladies who praise the Lord for what he's done in their lives, right? And they're saved, and these babies are saved for his glory and his alone. And we testify to the good news. And so our proclamation of the gospel is for, yes, it's for the salvation of sinners with a view that one day all the saints in the whole earth will give glory to God, a multitude beyond number, giving glory to God. Evangelism is for the glory of God. It's exactly, exactly. And as soon as Jethro got saved, he started to give glory to God. Look at verse number 12. He said, uh, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the, all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro, this is, this is stunning. Jethro became 
a member of the worshiping community, the communion of the saints. And, and we are, this is kind of passe to us because um, this always happens when somebody comes to faith in the living God. Evangelism leads first to worship, then to fellowship. But, the, but I want to point out something that's remarkable. Don't miss this. This is also a transferable spiritual principle. What makes this remarkable, Jethro was a Midianite, thus one of Israel's enemies. Did you know that? Not just a current enemy. They were an ancient enemy. The Midianites were ancient enemies. And they raided Israel all the way into the, the days of Gideon. And Gideon. In Judges 6 and 7, Gideon saves Israel from the Midianites. God told, as a matter of fact, God told the Israelites in Numbers 23, I'm not going to read it, uh, uh, have you turn there, but through the pen of Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. That's how they were supposed to treat the Midianites. But Jethro came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and is now part of the fellowship of God's people. They had peace with one another in the presence of God. Don't miss it. The enemies of the covenant community returned to faith in Christ and now dined with them. That is a picture of a personal salvation journey. Ephesians 2, look at what Paul says. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's every single person here. Right? Verse number 2. Or verse number 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our faith, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were, and don't miss this, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The word children of wrath, you could literally say in the original language, children destined for wrath. Children destined for wrath. What did God tell Israel to do to the Midianites? Kill them all. Display the wrath of God against sin and kill them all. Dear believer, you were an enemy. And then we have the amazing, amazing words of verse number four. But God. Don't miss that. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of His great love, which He loved us. In other words, He loved us while we were enemies. He loved His enemies so much. Because of His love we are saved, not because of our great decision. We were all enemies of God, and now we're in the fellowship of the saints, just like Jethro the Midianite. Praise be to God. Right? And this may be the most important lesson to learn from Jethro's conversion. This, this episode is much more than the story of 
the salvation of one man or even one family. The Bible tells this story because it reveals God's plan for the whole world. Salvation was never just for the Jews. From the very beginning, God intended to save people from all nations. This was even part of his plan for the Exodus. God said to Pharaoh that he was bringing his people out of Egypt so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's Exodus 9.16. A priest from Midian was virtually the first fulfillment of that promise as Moses proclaimed salvation to this, to this guy named Jethro. And we, dear believer, we have a message to proclaim as well. It's a message of salvation in Christ, forgiveness through his cross, and eternal life through his empty tomb. And each of us is called to do whatever we can to spread the word so that all nations will come to worship him. It breaks my heart when I'm driving down the road sometimes, uh, traveling recently. You've traveled Interstate 81. That's the worst segment of anybody's journey, well, other than 95 if you go the other way. And I don't even like to talk about, that's like an anathema, 95. But you get on it, four lanes of traffic, and you literally pass thousands and thousands of people, and you've got to think to yourself, These people, by and large, do not know God. They're enemies of God, and they do not know it. And it should break your heart. It should cause you to want to proclaim the the news. Now, not many are going to hear. We know that. But some will. Right? So a healthy church prays and has God's power. A healthy church evangelizes and very quickly A healthy church has shared ministry. That's the third mark of a healthy uh, community of faith. Notice what Moses had to do. This is amazing. He had to get to work. Look at the the language of verse number 13. Tell me if you think this would wear you out. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Sounds like the DMV, doesn't it? (laughs) Verse number 17. Look at verse number 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. Because he spent all day with these people. Moses had a lot going on. Moses was the mediator. He was talking, uh, he was taking the people to God in prayer and God to the people in teaching. Jethro didn't tell him to stop doing these tasks. He simply told him, that he could develop some organizational structure to get some help. Jethro understood administrative and organizational structures. Look at his advice. Starting verse number 21. Here's his advice. He says, find some capable leaders and help care for the people. And here's their qualifications, verse number 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who, here's the qualifications, able, fear God, trustworthy, hate a bribe, and place those people over, uh, men over the people. In other words, they were to be able men. They were capable of handling the, the position that they were in. They were able. Secondly, they were God-fearers. God-fearing people realize that serving God is serious business, regardless of how big or small the task. Third, they were to be reliable. The, the word in verse number 21 is, is trustworthy. You have to be able to count on people. 
Are you a trustworthy person? Can we count on you? Or do you call at the last minute and say, hey, you know, I can't. You know, trustworthy. And then number four, they were to hate a bribe. Uh, they, were, they weren't in it for the money. In summary, he was to look for men full of integrity, wasn't he? People full of integrity. Then Moses should train these men in order to share the ministry. And the bulk, don't miss this, the bulk of the ministry was done by people other than Moses. Now, how does this apply to the church? Well, in the New Testament, it teaches us that the ministry is shared as well. First, by a plurality of qualified elders. And it seems that one elder was delegated with the job of teaching and leading. And his primary task, don't miss this, primary task is to teach the Bible, both in public and private. Primary task, not the only but the main one, this is the one that he's supposed to focus on, is teaching in, in public and private. But it's not enough to simply know that what the Bible says. Christians must also do what God's command commands. So the minister shows the people how to live and how to put into practice what they're learning. Okay, put that into practice. Then there, it, there were governing elders. Uh, there were governing elders to help share the work. First um, Timothy five seventeen. I think I yeah. Look at what it says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This verse teaches that elders are called primarily to govern the church, and it also seems to distinguish between pastors and those who do who, the pastors who do most of the teaching and the other elders who share in this burden of spiritual care. But the elders don't do everything. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be closing very quickly now. Ephesians chapter 4. Because actually, the Bible teaches that the vast majority of the ministry in the church is done by y'all. Did you know that? We have this model that, that uh, historically has been brought up uh, that, that you have this minister who's a one-stop shop. And he does everything. You know, just, and it, it comes, well, I'm not going to go into that. I need to uh, move on. But look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. The vast majority of the uh, ministry of the church is done by people. The, the elders have equipped. And he gave the apostles... And this is uh, 4, verse number 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. What did he give them for? Next verse. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so who builds the body? Me? The elder board? Y'all do. Y'all build one another up. Isn't that great? It's kind of like crickets in here. <laughs> That's great. God gives you spiritual ministry. Every single one of you, he gifts you. And look at the conclusion in verse number 16. And when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, when you do your job, the body grows. Healthy. And it grows in love, right? Isn't that beautiful? You have very real 
spiritual ministry. This is from God. This isn't from Jared. This is God's word. You have spiritual ministry. Healthy communities of faith practice a shared ministry by having a every member ministry mindset. Some are appointed to leadership, but every Christian has a part to play in the body of Christ. You can pray for people. And I'm going to challenge you, pray for the church. Pray for other people. You can pray for people. You can care for people. And I'm, I'm just going to say this. If you're relying upon me to provide some real uh, uh, care in crisis, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> My kids, when they got hurt, they ran to mama. Because dad would say, see, I told you so. Right? But more than that, and this is my point, actually, this is my point. There are some, some of you, I'm in awe of the way God has gifted you to know exactly what to do at the right time when somebody's having a tough time. And I watch what some of you do, and I just, I think to myself, I would have never, if I'd lived to be a thousand years old, I would have never have thought to do that. Because that's the gifting of God in your life. And so it would be a sorry state of the church if I were to do all of that. Because God has gifted you to do stuff I can't do. And so you can pray, and you can care for the church, and you can teach others. Every Christian has spiritual gifts to use for the good of the body. And healthy communities of faith have active members serving, loving, and praying. So what makes a healthy church or a community of faith? Well, we need God's power, don't we? We need to be, more than ever, we need to be a praying community. We need to be sharing the good news. Who do you know right now that you've never shared the gospel with that you know needs it? Share the good news. The glory of God resides in not in their reaction. The glory of God resides in you sharing the glory of God. And then third... We need a shared ministry. Will you serve alongside others in this church? We thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you that they paid attention. I know uh, it was a long message, but Lord, th this truth is so rich and deep and actually encouraging that the battle is not ours, the battle is the Lord's. That we don't save, we just tell the good news of salvation. And that each one of us are equipped to serve, to ministry. Lord, I pray that these three marks will characterize Providence Bible Church. In his name, amen.